0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So are we reaching up to him this morning uh, with our hands uh, full of our brokenness? and our humanity, but meeting uh, a God who's a God of amazing grace and compassion, who reaches down toward us. And that actually fits well with our passage this morning in Hebrews. Um, uh, And of course, God reached down to us through Jesus. Um, Jesus took on human flesh, and that's how God ultimately uh, came into our world, reached out with his holy and perfect life, and brought us Help. So let me uh, read. We're going to be looking this morning in Hebrews chapter nine, verses one through 14. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or follow along as I read. Um, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for uh, of holiness for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates... That the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. For if the sprinkling of blood defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer, uh, if these sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, we'll stop there. Um, if you've been with us as we've been going through the, the book of Hebrews, you, you may remember uh, way back in, I think, chapter, into chapter 5 or chapter 6, um, he talks about uh, we need to move on to maturity and leave behind the milk of the word and start going into the solid food of the word. Um Uh, Chapter six, verse one, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Uh, And from that point on, the author has been moving into what he considers to be maturity, the meat of the word, right? Not just milk. And so um, so we come today to chapter nine and it's more uh, more meat, more solid food. But what's interesting, in it, if, uh, by the title of my message, it's, it's ultimately about Jesus' blood, right? And so it's a little confusing for me, I don't know about you, but I think of the blood of Jesus as being the most elementary, basic truth of the Christian life, right? Um, if we're going on to maturity, why aren't we going on to some like deep, theological, predispensational, dispensational cessationistic kind of thing, right? I don't even know what all those words mean, but they sound impressive. We're going back to the blood, right? The blood. And uh, I I think it's profound and and it's extremely important for us to know that going on to maturity, going on into the deeper meat of the word, does not mean going off to some obscure, random theological things that we often debate and, and get hung up on. It is ultimately going to the blood of Jesus, which is foundational. It is also the milk. Uh, but the reality is that uh, the author, as well as as, as we wrestle with some of these things, we come to understand that oftentimes our view of Jesus and the cross and the blood is extremely shallow and superficial. That's what he's talking about in these chapters. He's not launching off into some new theology. He's just saying, we need to know the depths of these truths in a much greater and more significant way. Um, And so so he's taking us into a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of of what Jesus did for us and how it impacts our life. Um, And this is the solid food that he's talking about. So we're going to look today at something as basic and simple as the blood of Jesus. Uh, In many ways, this is Christianity 101. Like you really can't enter the way we come into to know Christ we and, and to know salvation is through the blood. And so it's basic. But uh, as you think about it, what do you know about Jesus' blood? Right. If I were to ask you, if I were to give out a quiz and I would say write down 10 significant things that Jesus' blood accomplishes or 10 ways in which Jesus' blood works and operates, what would you write down well, if I gave myself that quiz, in all honesty, oftentimes I would kind of draw a blank. It's like, well, I don't know. It's just blood, right? It's just it has something to do with the cross, right? Right? It has to do with the cross. That's it. The cross. Um, but, but really, what, what is it about Jesus' blood that gives it such incredible power? Why is it his blood works? Why is it his blood is the means through which we have salvation and a transformed life? Um. What is the, the extent that his blood needs to impact us? And how is his promise uh, that his blood will work in us to accomplish great things? Do we know what those things are? Well, unfortunately, I think all too often we don't because we don't really give enough time and thought and, and, and deep thinking to these, 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 these solid food doctrines, right? What is it the blood really does for us? How does it work? Why did Jesus have to shed it? And it's vital because um, he says these are really the way we, we grow deeper in our salvation. This is the path to maturity. Uh, if we keep a shallow, superficial understanding of Jesus' blood, we will have a shallow, superficial walk with Christ. We will be uh, people who are shallow and superficial in our faith. And so there's a, there's a connection between our understanding of Jesus and his blood and what he accomplished on the cross and our own spiritual growth and maturity. Uh, so we'll keep looking through these. And, and uh, today's not the first time we'll talk about the blood. It we, kind of continues on. But let's look over the next few weeks. What, is, what does he mean by the blood? What is its place? What is its significance? Um, and, and basically what we're going to do, we're going to look at four ways, four, four ways that, um, that Jesus' blood has power, four reasons why his blood is powerful. Uh, and then we're going to look at how those four things translate into our life and give us power to overcome sin and to live the life God calls us to. So first off, what, what, is, what is it that gives Jesus' blood such power? What is it that makes it so effective? Um, and in the passage we just read, I'm not going to reread the first five verses, but in the first five verses, uh, he gives us description of the tabernacle according to the plan designed by Moses back in Exodus. So as Kate shared, back when we went through Exodus, she started having these thoughts and I uh, was inspired for some of these paintings. And, and uh, the inspiration for this text comes from uh, what Moses described about creating the, temp- the tabernacle. And if you remember, the tabernacle was a tent, uh, probably not quite as big as this room smaller, and it was divided into two compartments. And he describes the furniture in the first compartment and the furniture in the second compartment. But the point of it is he's trying to describe that there's two rooms in this tent, right? Uh, and one is called the holy place. He calls that the first room. And then the second room is called the most holy place. Both holy, both uh, drawing nearer to God's presence, but one more so than the other. And he says that, uh, and he, desc- he describes further in verse 6, he said that once the tabernacle was all set up and all the furniture was in place, that they would worship God by entering into this, this temple, this tabernacle, this tent, uh, and they would worship God. But, but who could go into that first room? Well, only a priest. Right? So if you were a worshiper back then, uh, you actually couldn't really, you were very limited in what you could participate right in worship. Imagine this morning if we got you all got to church here this morning and downstairs uh, our elders were standing there looking like this all mean and kind of buff and David's there with his muscles and his look and he's like are, and as you're trying to come into church they're stopping you and they're saying hey are you uh, are you qualified to go into church right are you a priest and you're like are you an elder no I'm not an elder I'm not a priest are you the pastor No, I'm I'm none of those things. Well, I'm sorry then, you're just going to have to wait out here in the grass. And so the elders file in and the preacher comes in, the priest, whatever I am, right? And he comes upstairs and we all have this little worship service up here while you guys stand out here in the grass and listen. How cool would that be, right? That would not be fun. Well, that's kind of what happened in the tabernacle. Only the priest could go in and actually participate in the duties or the ceremonies or the rituals that were involved in the, in the in, in, in temple worship, bringing bread, uh, lighting the candles, um, offering incense, right? Uh, the rest stood at a distance and watched. Um, not only that, but then he talks about the, uh, that's the outer room, but then there's even another room, the inner room. And he said, um, for, for the second room, the most holy place, only the high priest could go in there. And that only one time per year, and not without blood. But into the second, only the high priest goes, verse 7, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So he, he, uh, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail here, but basically he gives this example to illustrate two reasons why the old system failed. Two, two reasons why the old system was ineffective. The Old Testament system instituted by Moses. First limitation is it could not give access to God. He says, he said, you know, uh, in, in verse 80, he says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. In other words, the age in which the tabernacle was in operation. So that's his point here. He says the first problem is that in the old system, it did not give you access to God. Um, Even the high priest could only go in once a year, and that only with blood. And and he did not have access daily into God's presence. So that was a serious problem. Um, We we talk about going to heaven. And going to heaven simply means going fully into the presence of God. So if you can't get access into God's presence, you're you're in trouble. There's something wrong with the system. Second limitation is that it could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Uh, Again, he says in verse 9, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, the regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, all of this stuff was just a shadow or a picture, and we've talked about this before. It, it illustrated what was required, but it was just a picture, not the real thing. And it did not give you access to God, and it really didn't give true, deep cleansing. Right? It was external. So it was effective for uh, taking away some of the ceremonial or ritual defilement on the body, but it didn't do anything inwardly uh, in our conscience. Right? What is our conscience? Uh, well, our conscience is uh, the sense that pervades our whole spiritual nature at one, and at once notices and reports what is wrong or right in our state right? what is wrong or right in our state? You know that feeling when you just you do something and and instantly you get this twang, this pierce inside that says ooh that 's not right right something 's wrong here." Uh, And, of course, we feel that prick of conscience when we do something we know we're not not supposed to do. But even more in general, uh, as it's probably used here, our conscience probably means more than just the sense, but the very state or reality of our heart. Uh, And and here's the reality. When our conscience is not clean, when our conscience has a sense that there's something wrong, that because of sin we are polluted or we are violated or corrupted, uh, it has far-reaching effects upon our, our being, our psyche, our thinking, the way we act and the way we live. Uh, when our conscience is not clear or clean, we feel guilt and shame and a deep sense of unworthiness. And we see this with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Adam and Eve were innocent. They were just you know having a good time, enjoying the garden, and all of a sudden they, they, they violated God's command and they ate the fruit. And what happened? They started, they started a sewing class, right? What did sewing class have to do with eating fruit? Well, they felt what? Naked and ashamed, exposed. All of a sudden, they had the sense that something's not right with my life. And they hid from God. They ran away from Him. Fear crept into their life and shame and guilt and a, a sense of running away. Um as a result of an unclear conscience, our heart and our mind do all kinds of things to make, make up for this deep-seated sense that my life is not right, that there's something wrong, that I am unworthy and that I'm corrupt and dirty inside. And so we work hard to convince ourselves that we're really okay. How do we do that? Well, we sew fig leaves together, right? We say, well, you know, really cool people wear, you know, sure, you can go naked, I don't care, but I, cool people wear designer fig leaves, right? And so we're still wearing what? Designer fig leaves, right? Because you can't just wear, like, cheap fig leaves. You've got to have, like, cool fig leaves, right? What is that all about? Well, it is about uh, just finding ways to give ourselves worth and meaning, knowing that deep inside we have the sense that everything is wrong, right? Everything is wrong, um, we, we should have our identity, or our sense of worth in this, that we are made in God's image and we are beings who reflect his glory and give him glory. Right? That's what gives us ultimate worth. Right? That's what we were created for, to live in God's presence, to enjoy him, uh, and to reflect his glory as beings who are created in his image. Right? So I, I like Kate's picture. We were created pure white, right? And if we were still in that state of purity and cleanse, cleanness, our hands lifted up to Him in worship would be what? They would be pure white. But we have been tainted and corrupted by sin. And we know that we reach out to God in a world that is broken and dark, right? where we are no longer giving Him glory. So we must change how we view our worth as a person. right? Because we know this isn't going to work for us anymore. No longer can I give glory can I have worth or meaning based on my holiness, on a life that's pure and clean, right? So now our worth is based on different things, right? What is your worth based on? Well, it's cool now because we have things to help us with this, right? And now our worth can be based on how many likes I have on social media, right? This can define who I am as a person. Right? If enough people like me, if enough people watch my video or view my post, I have worth, right? Of course, it's kind of pathetic for that guy who puts up that video and gets two whole views and, and, and a like that gets erased, right? What happens to your worth? Um, we base worth on how others admire us for our accomplishments or our adventures. I, you know, I really do love the invention of the GoPro really is a cool thing. Between that and social media... We have people doing the most crazy and insane things like, you know, ridiculously insane things and dangerous. Right. Why do people do those things? Well, partly because of the thrill of the of adventure, but partly because now we can videotape the whole thing and post it on Facebook. Right. And if it works, I'm cool. If it doesn't work, I'm in the hospital <laughs> or worse. Um, and then, you see, that's striving for worth, right? And the reason we we do that is because our conscience is not clear. Our conscience is not pure, and we know it, right? We know deep down inside that there is something desperately wrong with me. And so the world has told us how we can fix it, but it doesn't work. All right, so so Jesus... um, Back to where we're at. He goes into the the place, right? The thing that makes his blood effective to deal with sin is that unlike the old system, which could not cleanse the conscience, could not purify the conscience, Jesus has a different approach. And the first approach why his blood is so powerful and effective is because of where he goes, where his ministry takes place. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, the good promises, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. first reason Jesus' blood is powerful and effective is because his ministry does not take place on this earth. Now, he lived on this earth and he did ministry here, but his ultimate ministry is to enter the holy places of heaven the true and perfect tent not made with human hands, in, in God's throne room in heaven. And he enters into the very presence of God where he does his ministry. Um, and that's why his blood is vastly more effective. Right? The earthly tent, the earthly temple was simply a picture, a model, a scale model, if you will, of, of heaven. And it it could never have effect. But Jesus did not minister there. He did not go through the temple courtyard in Jerusalem. He's gone through uh, life in the flesh, and He's entered through through the Old Testament uh, under the law, uh, went to the cross, died and rose again, and entered the heavenly throne room where He ministers His salvation uh, by His blood. And the very presence of God. Okay, so remember that. We'll come back to this. The place His blood has power because of where He ministers. Secondly, uh, His blood has power because of who He is as a person. Uh, and He doesn't really. He implies it and infers it in this passage. He doesn't say it exactly, but ultimately, Jesus' blood has has uh, power and effect because of who He is. And uh, the author spent the first four chapters of the book explaining how Jesus is both God and man. He's not just human. He's not just a person. He's fully human but he's also fully God. He has the divine nature. He is God's son. Uh, And as God's son, what is his worth? Well, what is your worth? I think I read somewhere that they said the materials in your body may, you know, if you could take down all the actual material and sell it You know, at the recycle center, it's like worth $2.20 or something, right? Um, We may have more worth than that, depending on how we're valued by others. But what is Jesus' worth as the incarnate Son of God? We'll come back to that one as well. But remember that, right? Jesus' blood has worth because of who he is as the incarnate Son of God. Third thing. Uh, His blood has worth because it was offered from a perfect life. It was offered from a perfect life. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? Um, This is really important. And this is one of the deeper things that we oftentimes overlook. Jesus' blood does not have blood just because it ran red. Right? Right? Your blood is the same color. Your blood has the same biological makeup. Uh, Jesus' blood in its physical state was no different than your blood or my blood. Um, If all that was required was a human sacrifice, uh, God could have picked somebody else. He didn't need Jesus to come. Why is it Jesus' blood was so effective in, in cleansing our conscience? Well, the reason is that he offered a life that was without blemish. His life was absolutely perfect and spotless. Right? Uh, he lived this life in, a, in human flesh, but he did it with full and complete conformity to God's will and purpose. It was, it was necessary for Jesus, and that's one of the themes of the book of Hebrews, it was necessary for Jesus to come and live a life just like us and to be tempted like us in every way. Right? Jesus battled with all the sins, all the temptations, all the struggles that every one of you and I deal with. Right? Maybe not the specific thing, but the root thing underneath it. He dealt with. But unlike you and I, he did it without ever sinning. He was fully, 100%, always obedient. Uh, he uh, offered up his life uh, in surrender to God's will. Right? And that wasn't easy for him. As Jesus prayed in the garden, um, he pled with God, you know, take this cup from me. Uh, But in the end, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus did everything perfectly. Um, He was spotless and without blemish. Uh, this was pictured in the Old Testament, right? When they were to bring a lamb, it was to be without defect, without blemish. And that meant it was, wasn't to have a birth defect or, or some other problem, right? You couldn't offer, you know, like the three-legged sheep, right? Or the blind sheep or the sheep that, you know, had problems. It had to be perfect. Uh, and it's, it's a picture that Jesus had to be without blemish, not only in his body, but in his whole being. Right? And he did that. And then the point is this you can't cleanse sin with blood that is sinful. Right? Uh, To help me illustrate this, um, to wash clothes, you can't wash clothes with muddy water. See this water? Muddy water. You know where this came from? Uh, There's no kidding. I got this this morning out of a a tap from our Muban water. (laughs) This is our Muban water, right? Um, and when we first moved into our house, we didn't really realize that this was our Mubon water. And uh, we were washing our clothes. And guess what our clothes looked like after we washed it in this water? They were not cleaner, right? Um, so I had to buy this very expensive filter to filter out all of the slime so that we could have clean clothes. Right? Well, that's the picture of Jesus' blood. His blood is effective in cleansing us because it is perfectly clean, right? It's pure, and that's why it's powerful and effective. Right? Because he lived a s- absolute sinless, perfect life. And by offering up his sinless, perfect life without blemish, his pure and holy blood can cleanse us from sin. Right? That's what gives it power. Fourth thing, last thing of what gives it power. It, it has power uh, through the Spirit. Uh, only place in the New Testament where this, where this is mentioned, and it creates a lot of questions for theologians, and I'm not going to explain it all. But, um, but what he says is this in verse 12. He says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... If that's true, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience? It's interesting. It says Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit. Um, Of course, he was God. He was the incarnate God. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Right? I think it's fascinating to me that Jesus did all of his life in ministry not, not really in the power of who he was as the son. Right? He took on human flesh and he operated so much in the flesh that he relied and depended on the power of the Holy Spirit to live and, and, and overcome sin and live a successful life. Right? Sometimes we think Jesus kind of cheated because I mean he was divine nature, right? But scripture is very clear that he he took on the fullness of flesh. He lived his life here on this earth fully in the flesh. He didn't rely and not, not that his divine nature disappeared, it was there, but rather than relying on his own divine nature, he relied on his cohort the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, not only in how he lived his life, how he wrestled and struggled and overcame sin, how he did ministry, and there's many references in the Gospels we don't have time to look up, where it talks about Jesus going out and doing ministry and being led by the Spirit. What I think is amazing is not only did he live his life by the power of the Spirit, not only did he wrestle with going to the cross and overcome by the power of the Spirit, but it says that ultimately he offered his life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the significance of this is huge for us, and it is this, that there is a vital connection between the blood and the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, not too many times, in fact, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon where I put those two things together, but the writer of Hebrews does. Right? The power of the blood is that it is affected by the Holy Spirit. And likewise, the power of the Holy Spirit is there because it is empowered by the blood of Jesus. And we'll see in a minute in our own life how this works in, in our life. Right? It is through the power of the blood and through the power of the Holy Spirit working together that it has its effect and accomplishes its purpose in our life. All right. So those are the four things. I want to do go back and, and look at how those things get applied to our life. Right? When We put our faith in Christ. We put ourselves under the blood. We seek. Uh, God to apply its ministry to our life. This is another terrible illustration, but it's the best I could come up with. right? You know when you get sick and you go to the pharmacy and you get some drug that somebody told you about, and here they'll just give it to you? I love that. Um, you got some of this, and if you can pronounce it, they'll give it to you. And you look at the carton, and on there there's all kinds of things, but it will always feature the active ingredient, right? And that's the thing that gives it power. Like all the other stuff is just fillers and things that make it uh, so you can eat it, uh, and maybe so it kind of tastes not too bad. Uh, but what really matters is its, is its its active ingredient. right? That's what gives it power. So what is, and again, this is kind of a terrible illustration, but what is the active ingredient in Jesus' blood? What is it, those four things are the active ingredient that give it power, but what are the symptoms that, that those ingredients speak to in our life? Right? What is its effect upon us? Um, first thing, First effect is that it accomplishes for us redemption. Uh, and it does that because of who Jesus is as a person. Right? So these things are connected. The blood has power because of who Jesus is. And what it does for us is it redeems us. Um, he says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goes and calves, but by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Um, what is eternal redemption? Well, redemption simply means to purchase something back. And usually it was used as slaves. Right back in those days, if you got into serious debt, instead of getting a credit card, what you would do is you would become a slave. And you would pay back that debt literally through your labor. Um if somebody took pity on you or wanted to help you out, they could purchase you out by uh, paying for the years of labor that you still owed. Right? So the amount of labor you're worth times the number of years ahead of you was the purchase price. Right? So actually, we kind of joke about what you're worth, but back in those days, you could assign a dollar value to your life. That's kind of a scary thought. Like if somebody were to assign a dollar value to your life, you're never getting down to what you're really worth, right? Uh, That's what they would do. Um, And redemption was this idea of purchasing you back. And it was expensive, right? A human life, the, the labor value of a human life over 10 or 15 years was a lot of money. It was expensive, right? It took something of great worth, great worth, right? Well, Jesus has purchased us. With his own blood. What gives his blood worth? Right? What makes it valuable enough that it could purchase you and I? And by the way, what is the purchase price of not only you and I, but all who are saved? Well, it's an infinite amount. right? It is an infinite cost, an infinite price. Um, but Jesus' blood is enough. Because He is the infinite incarnate Son of God who has in Himself infinite worth. Right? Infinite worth. So because of who Jesus is, His blood is sufficient to purchase us and redeem us out of slavery and sin. Okay? His life in exchange for ours. He purchased us with His blood. Second thing. Uh, we talked about the place, right? Right? That the old, as long as, the, as long as there was a two-room temple, two, two-room tabernacle, it meant that we did not have access to God. Second thing that Jesus' blood does for us is that it gives us complete and full access to the presence of God. Uh, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent he entered once for all, into the holy places by his own blood. Right? He has paved the way for us to enter following him. Because he didn't just enter an earthly temple, but a heavenly one. Uh, you know, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like worshiping under the old system, right? And I kind of joke about having to stand outside a church, right? Honestly, if if you got left outside, how many of you would even show up, (laughs) right? You're like, well, you know, it's so distant. It's so impersonal, right? I think too often we just take for granted what it means for us that we have been given free and complete and direct access into God's presence, right? So complete and perfect is this access that the Bible pictures us gathered here as a temple, not the building, not the place, not the room, but we as a group of people are together the temple of God where his presence and his spirit dwells. Uh, do, we really, do we really believe that? Right? Do we really believe that right now, this very second, God himself is fully present with us? Right. Like when we get to heaven, we will not have any more of God's presence than what we have right now. The difference is that when we get there, we'll see it better, right? Right now, we're, we're mostly blind to it. But it's not any less real. right? God is fully present with us. And when you leave from here, you also are the temple of God. Through Jesus' blood, uh, He has made His home in, in your heart. And you have access both to His throne in heaven and He has full access to your heart. Uh, Ephesians 3.14 says this, "...for this reason I bow my knees before the Father." that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with, the, with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So there's the Holy Spirit working the blood in your life so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, th- these are clearly the deeper truths of the blood that, that we so often miss. Right? Uh, it would revolutionize your life if you knew the extent to which you live moment by moment by moment, fully in God's presence. He's with you. He's watching everything you do. And He's there to empower you and to strengthen and equip you. Third thing, um, because Jesus offered His life without blemish, because His blood is pure, It has power to give us a a clear conscience. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works? Because Jesus was was, was without blemish, uh, his blood is fully effective in cleansing our conscience. Uh, That means that we should have a deep conviction that I am okay. Right, that my life is pure and clean. Uh, not by my works or anything that I've done. Right, Not because we're a good person, but because of the blood of Jesus. He's cleansed us. All my sin, everything that was wrong with me has been washed clean. Um, and this should have huge impact in our life. If we really believe this, we will not run from God. Right? One of the reasons we do not draw into God's presence, one of the reasons we live distant from God is because our conscience is not subtle. Because we really haven't developed the deep conviction of faith that He has cleansed our conscience completely and we now stand before God, holy and blameless. Blameless, just like Jesus, by His doing. Uh, With a clear conscience, we will run toward God's presence. Right? We will want to be with him. Uh, and we will strive to gain worth not from the world because uh, our conscience is clear. Right? We will know that we have worth and identity based on who we are in Christ as those who are holy and blameless. Right? That's the gift of a clean conscience. Is We won't care what people think about us anymore because we will know fully and completely that we are okay. Right? Uh, Are you there yet? I I wish I was there, right? I wish I was there. I wish I believed that so much that I just didn't really care what anybody thought. Because my worth and my identity was so wrapped up in who I am in Jesus. Problem is, Jesus cleansed our conscience, but we don't believe it yet. We still condemn ourselves because we don't believe, we don't understand how effective his blood was and making our conscience 100% pure and clean. And so now we have worth because our life can be lived for his glory, which is the last thing. Uh, We worship God through serving. Uh, Verse 14 again, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. If we stopped without this point, the whole thing would be quite me focused. <laughs> it would be far too self serving and selfish. Right? This ultimately is not about us. Right? God did not redeem us and clean us and cleanse us and give us new life so we could live more self centered, self absorbed lives. Which is unfortunate, because that's often what gets taught in the church that, hey, Jesus saved you, so now you can be even more selfish and more self-absorbed. That's not the purpose. He did all this so that you and I could serve the living God. And the word serve here is the word that's used for the priest service in the temple. And what's cool about this word is it's it's a word with a double meaning. And by that I don't mean it has two meanings, but it has one meaning that involves two, two things at the same time. Uh, And the two meanings are uh, serving and worship. Again, not two meanings, but two things that are combined together. And for the high priest, when they went into the temple to serve God, it was their worship. And this word captures both, right? They were worshiping God in their service. And that's what we do. Through the blood of Jesus, we worship God as we serve him. And the blood of Jesus makes it possible to do this. Uh, the reality is there's, it's really easy to serve God with the wrong heart and the wrong motives. Anybody can serve God. In fact, I have some Buddhist friends who think they're serving God. Right? Uh, I know a lot of immature Christians who are serving God. But they're serving God for the totally wrong reasons. Right? It's easy to serve God because we think God needs our help. Right? It's like, man, and I've heard, I've heard you know, missions, missions conferences, I've heard this one. You need to go be a missionary because the whole world is going to go to hell if you don't go save them, right? Because God needs your help. So you go serve God because God needs you. Newsflash. God does not actually need you at all. Right? That is not why you serve Him. And if you're serving him, because, serving him because you think He needs you, you need to redo your theology, right? God does not need your help. He spoke the world and into, into, in, all the universe in, in six days just by speaking. Trust me, he does not need your help. Uh, we serve because we want to prove to God what a good person I am. I mean, that, that, that totally undermines and contradicts everything that Jesus' blood is about. right? Jesus died because our hands were stained with sin, and the only way we could be a good person is by the cleansing work of his blood. We don't serve to prove to God how good we are. Newsflash, you're not good. Right? That's not why we serve. Uh, We serve because sometimes we we think it makes us feel important or valuable or needed. We serve because it makes me feel good. Wrong reason for serving. That's self-centered and not God-worshipping. See, our service can only be God honoring worship when we do it through the blood of Jesus. Because when we understand what Jesus has done to redeem us, it fills us, it ought to fill us with incredible gratitude. That that makes us so thankful that we went to serve God because we were thankful. Because we love him, because we're amazed at what he's done for us. And out of gratitude we serve him. That's worship. Um By the blood of Jesus, we draw near to God and we live in His presence. We have intimate communion and relationship and fellowship with Him. And that ought to make us want to serve Him. Because we love Him. Because we know Him. And because we know He's empowering us to serve Him. Our service becomes worship when we do it with a clear conscience. Knowing that I have nothing to prove to God or anybody else. And I'm not serving to write cool prayer letters to impress my friends back home, Because I have a clear conscience. I don't need to do those things anymore. Uh, And I can serve Him with a pure conscience out of my love and worship for Him, not because of any selfish motives on my part. And finally, our service becomes worship because we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that works the blood in our life. Right, that brings about its impact and its effectiveness. And it's by the Spirit that we serve God as worship. Right, this morning uh, we're, we're going to celebrate communion and we moved it after the message because I thought it would just fit better with uh, this, this theme. And as we prepare our hearts, uh, what do we know about His blood? Right, Is our Understanding of his blood shallow and superficial, or do we wrestle with these deep truths? Right? Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the precious blood of Jesus. And we confess that far too often we take it for granted and we uh, treat it as something trivial and common. Lord, forgive us for not uh, walking into the meat of your word and into greater maturity and understanding about uh, why Jesus' blood matters, why his death on the cross was so powerful and effective, why it was necessary for him to come to this earth in flesh and wrestle daily with sin and be tempted like us why it mattered that Jesus willingly offered up His own life in obedience and surrender to the Father's will. But these are the very things that give it His blood power and effect in heaven, before the throne of God, and in our life. Lord, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, Lord, may we meditate and ponder these things. Help us do that by Your Spirit, we pray. Amen.